Walk in the Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Hello, I'm Major Chris Parker, and this podcast topic is Defense Support of Civil Authorities. With me today is Brigadier General John Rieger, Director of the Joint Staff, Kansas National Guard. Colonel Rich Creed, Director of the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate, or CAD, Stephen Tennant, Assistant Professor at the Command and General Staff College, and joining us by phone from Fort Sam Houston is Mr. Robert Gonzalez, Senior Domestic Operational Law Attorney, Office of the Staff Judge, Judge Advocate, U.S. Army North. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here. Thank you. Today we're discussing how the U.S. Army and National Guard support local, state, and federal authorities during domestic emergencies and natural disasters. Along with offense, defense, and stability operations, Defense Support of Civil Authorities, or DISCA, is an element of decisive action. However, it differs in several key areas, particularly the laws and authorities that govern U.S. forces operating within the homeland. Now, whether it be through civil unrest, the COVID-19 response, or operations along the U.S.-Mexico border, DISCA has taken center stage as of late. But before we get into that, Colonel Creed, if you could, start us off with some doctrinal background and a description of DISCA and the associated tasks. Yeah, thanks, Chris. So we have a capstone doctrinal publication, an Army doctrinal publication, ADP 328, and it's titled Defense Support of Civil Authorities. Uh, we published uh, the latest revision to that last summer, uh, dated July of 2019. Uh, and it defines DISCA as the support provided by U.S. federal military forces, DOD civilians, DOD contract personnel, DOD component assets, and National Guard forces in response to requests for assistance from civil authorities for domestic emergencies, law enforcement support, and other domestic activities, uh, or from qualifying entities for special events. Uh, we might get into what those are at some other point. There's uh, four key tasks associated uh, with the term DISCA. It's to provide support for domestic disasters, provide support for domestic chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear incidents, and to provide support for domestic civilian law enforcement agencies, and then finally provide other designated support, which is a, a catch-all uh, for unforeseen circumstances that we may not write to directly in doctrine. Uh, one of the key distinctions is that DISCA con consists of military operations conducted in the United States and in support of civil authorities. So as such, um, from a doctrinal perspective and what people tend to look at most often is uh, COMPO 1, we call it, Component 1, uh, U.S. Army Component 1. So the active duty forces don't tend to pay as much attention to this uh, as the U.S. Army National Guard and the U.S. Uh, Army Reserve do uh, because of the nature of the mission and the likelihood that they are to perform uh, those missions in, in those various roles and responsibilities. And so the doctrine lays out uh, essentially four broad pillars, and I think we'll get into that uh, in a practical sense here. Uh, the first is the state and federal laws define how military forces support civil authorities. Uh, the second is civil authorities are in charge and military forces support them. Uh, the third is military forces depart when civil authorities are able to continue without that military support. And finally, military forces must document the costs of all of the direct and indirect support. Uh, provided. Now that may sound a little goofy being in doctrine, but it's a huge big deal because nothing's free. Now, sir, thanks for that intro. And I want to kind of direct this next to 
Mr. Tennant, with your background, because we just we discussed some of this uh, before we started uh, recording today. And those fundamentals that, that Colonel Creed just mentioned, can you give us some background on where those came from and how those were developed? It was actually in the staffing of a previous version of this doctrine, which was a FM 328 a number of years ago. And uh, when it was vetted, uh, it went out to a lot of different uh, places for review. Uh, at one point, the list got up to 15 fundamentals. And uh, so uh, let's just say some editorial, uh, judicious editorial effort was put into reducing it to the point where it's essentially unchanged from what you see there and, or what you heard there. And uh, that was finally, uh, National Guard Bureau finally came online and said, that's it, stick with it. And that's kind of the short story. Now, why the money piece? That seems interesting to me. It stands out, the last fundamental that's on there. Can you give us some background there? Everything that happens in a disaster response is reimbursable. DOD does not work for free. So if DOD is getting involved in a response, uh, it's at the direction of FEMA, at the request of the state, uh, under a presidential disaster declaration. And... It's not free, okay? It, it must be reimbursed by the, the, the people that we're supporting. Now, a lot of times that comes out of the disaster fund, and there's a cost share in the disaster fund between state and, and the federal resources that are applied. The state's usually paying 25% of all the costs associated with a disaster, uh, and that can be, the president has some discretion on on lowering that percentage, but generally that's the rule. So if you are in Wallace County, Kansas, population 1442, and you have a, a disaster and you get a response, at least 25% of that is being paid for by the good citizens of Wallace County, Kansas. All right? And that's sometimes a hard thing to do in a, in a low, yeah. low economic area or a d lightly populated rural area. So I guess, I mean, people think about the cost of the response in terms of damages that have to be repaired and so forth, but you're talking about the cost of maintenance of the vehicles, fuel, the salaries of the soldiers that are mobilized and so forth. That's what we mean? Um, it depends. And that's part of the problem in this business. I often get asked, well, what, how does this work? And my first answer is, what zip code are you standing in? Because it really depends very much on <clears throat> state law. Uh, how states subdivide for political jurisdictions, like in Kansas, for example. We have a water uh, board that has a taxing jurisdiction, for example. And that matters. And different st every state does it differently. So you, you kind of have to have Mr. Gonzalez as your best friend when you're working in this arena because those authorities are, are significant. And who can tell you to do what is based on those authorities? Well, sir, let's go ahead and, and talk about that response that you bring up. You kind of started us there. Can you walk us through kind of the, the broad overview of how a DISCO response operation would work from essentially the ground up? Sure. Uh, first of all, if it's DISCO, uh, there has to be something bad going on that's going to involve either the National Guard at the state level or federal forces at the national level. Uh, so 99.9% .9 of the time, we're, we're not having a conversation about the military in general in a disaster response unless it's a big 
big disaster. Uh, second, um, there are some things that are DISCA. That you mentioned them, sir, the, the other support, uh, other as required. So let me take a minute and just review those because these things are kind of outside of the, the everyone hears DISCA and they start thinking about disaster response. But there's a lot of categories that are outside of that. So, for example, wildland firefighting support. Wildland firefighting support, there is somebody tasked with that every year. And that is not handled uh, under the Stafford Act, which is the primary legislation for disaster response. It's handled under the Economy Act in a memorandum of agreement between the Department of the Interior, the Department of Agriculture, and the Department of Defense. So it's reimbursable under the Economy Act on an interdepartmental memo for DOD forces to get mobilized when called upon to go fight fires, okay? And, and that means the costs of everything are reimbursed, not just the incremental costs. So you're also, you're paying for the fuel, right. the food, right. et cetera. You're also paying for paying benefits for every single soldier that's mobilized that's getting reimbursed back to DOD. It's everything. Uh, the um, protection of critical infrastructure, there are, without getting into too much detail, there are instances where the National Guard and or the Army might be employed with critical infrastructure considerations. And that's ongoing and it has nothing to do with a disaster response. And it's also complex because 85% of the critical infrastructure in this country is privately owned or public-private partnership, and the federal government has nothing to do with it, but has a responsibility to protect it. Um, community assistance. Now, that's people like, if you were going to march in the Veterans Day Parade in Leavenworth, Kansas on November 11th, that, that is technically a DISCA event. Flyovers at ball games, um, color guards, band performances, also, uh, there are some places in the country where medevac, Army medevac helicopters and guard medevac helicopters are under memorandums of agreement to provide support. Um, state and local events, uh, national events, and in this case, we're talking about supporting security efforts and in preparedness for things like the Olympics, mm -hmm. the Super Bowl, political conventions, the inauguration, Etc. 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 And and there's usually a DoD uh, element that's involved in that, and there's usually um, quite a bit of planning effort that goes into it. And then uh, all of these things are usually have somebody else who's in charge. DoD is just supporting that somebody. So, for example, a national security event, typically the Secret Service is the lead federal agency. And we're just providing them some sort of support or another that's within DOD's capabilities, and it's on a reimbursable basis. Nothing's free. Now, let's let's take a look at I guess the macro, the micro level, and we'll work our way up. Let's say a small town in, in Wallace County, Kansas, has a has a flood, and it rapidly grows beyond the means for the local community to manage. What's the framework in the response? What's that look like from there? How does it build up? Okay, so just. From a from a overall macro process uh, point of view, we have the National Incident Management System, which is a sort of managed and directed by FEMA. Otherwise known as NIMS. NIMS, correct. And as a subsidiary of that, you have the National Response Framework, which is a structure for how we do it and what capabilities are brought to bear. And 
incident command system, which is how you manage it. Uh, and, and all of those things uh, are related to presidential policy directives five and eight, which dictate this is how we're going to do it. And they're also related to the Stafford Act, uh, ultimately, which is the legislation for this sort of thing. Um, but everything starts local, no matter what. Everything starts local. So if Wallace County, Kansas has something bad happen, uh, the first responders are the police, the, the, probably the sheriff and the police, maybe in Sharon Springs, and maybe their EMS for the county, because that's what they have, right? Yeah. Sharon Springs is the capital, county seat of Wallace, Kansas. So who do they then call next when the when the police and fire say we this is beyond us? We can't do it anymore. So Sharon Springs is out of Schlitz, and they're going to call the county emergency manager, and and they're going to mobilize county resources. Okay, and then it, once the county is out of the uh, of resources to apply to the problem, they're going to look around and employ mutual aid. They're going to request help from their surrounding counties, for example to bring resources in to help. And those are, are governed by mutual aid agreements, intergovernmental mutual aid agreements that specify in advance, if, if we have a fire and we don't have enough firefighters, we're gonna call you and you're gonna respond and we're gonna reimburse you. And here's the rate at which we're gonna reimburse you and, and they, they, they've pre-negotiated all of that. It's, it's all already written in, down in a legal agreement. Um, an example of that, for example, uh, three, four years ago now, there was a large apartment complex that caught fire in Overland Park, Kansas. It was a 33-alarm fire. They brought fire trucks from as far away as Lawrence, Kansas. It never got managed outside of the city. No county in involvement, no state involvement, uh, and it's a large incident. You know, there was a lot of damage that, that occurred but it was all managed by the city emergency, emergency management function uh, with 33 uh, alarms rung under mutual aid. Okay, now, so I see that this is all county by county, city by city with these compacts. When do we bring in, or when does the, the National Guard, for example, when do they get called in, and how's that work? Uh, let, me bring, let, me, let me walk you through that next step. So now the county is out of resources. They're going to turn to the governor, next level, next political subdivision up, and they're going to ask for help. And the governor is probably already knowing something is going on in Wallace County because the state EOC is monitoring it, and they're going to start responding with the, uh, a disaster declaration and the application of state resources uh, to help Wallace County. Now, they may take a, based on analysis, they may take a decision that says, you know, we need to send some National Guard folks in to support them. That'll, that'll be a state level decision based on a requirement that comes in from the incident commander on the ground for resources. And then they will make that decision at the state level and deploy National Guard forces at that point. But typically that's gonna happen after they've deployed other resources, you know, state fire resources, state police, you know, state social service, state uh, engineering resources, anything that the state has, contracted resources, anything that they have that can be applied to solving the problem, they'll do that. Kind of at the state level, the National Guard, depending on what it is, is sort of the last 
resource applied because they cost money and you got to mobilize people you got to bring them on to state active duty you have to pay them and I want to turn this over to uh, General Rieger. I, th I think it's important to note, that, and that's a good point to, to note, that, yes, the Guard should be a, a last resort in a lot of sense just because of the cost factor. But also, if you take think about it, you know, um, if the Guard gets put in into a particular position where they're going to go into a community and do X, Y, and Z, there may be a contractor that can do X, Y, and Z that uh, you're taking maybe money away from too by employing the guard. Now, you know, at the end of the day, you know, th those are the things that are being discussed, you know, at the state level to, to make the right decision on when, when's the right time to, to employ the guard. And, and there is a flash to bang aspect of it too that we do have to mobilize. You know, we can, we can put a few on ground quickly, but to get a substantial force, depending upon the size of the event, you know, it does take some time to mobilize. So, so all that has to be weighed into that decision making. Awesome. So now we've got the, the, national, the state National Guard involved. Now, if this crisis or, or disaster, uh, I guess, expands beyond their capability, um, what's next? Can we talk about the Emergency Management Assistance Compact? That How does is, that work? That is precisely what's next. So uh, they're still watching Wallace County. Mm -hmm. they, they understand that they need more resources, or they might need a specific resource that the, the state of Kansas doesn't have. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, there is this thing called the Emergency Management Assistance Compact, and it is actually statutory. It's, it's based on legislation. Uh, it, started, it, it, it started in the southeast United States, and they came to an agreement that they were going to share resources in hurricane season. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, It really started with an agreement to share law enforcement resources in hurricanes so that the state police in Alabama could go help out in Florida and, and they would be given appropriate authority and jurisdiction and indemnification if something went wrong and vice versa. And then they expanded that to other kinds of resources other than just the police. And, and eventually that spread nationwide. Uh, and eventually Congress got on the, in the act in 1996 and, and passed the enabling legislation that the, the word that I sparked on when I reread it was consent. Congress consents to the states doing this. So now states, all 50 states have done it, have enacted legislation that uh, joins the Emergency Management Assistance Compact. And that compact is a system for sharing resources. And it's like mutual aid, but on a larger level. Uh, so if I need a urban search and rescue team for Sharon Springs and Kansas doesn't have one, but there's one in Omaha, Nebraska, we can exercise an EMAC and bring that team in to Sharon Springs, you see. And we don't have to worry about how they're notified, how they're indemnified, how they're paid, because that's already been pre-coordinated, pre-arranged, and it, it's an enacted by the state legislatures. Uh, the, the framework has been enacted and adopted as law by every state le legislature involved. The National Guard, and sir, maybe you want to comment on this, the National Guard uh, uses EMAC a lot, and they have an annual conference, for example, when they're planning for hurricane season uh, on National Guard and EMAC that they do every year. That's correct. Uh, the, you know, every year March uh, there is a conference where you know all the all the all the states get together, National Guard uh, representation gets together, and 
and uh, and discuss what and bring in what capabilities a state may need or what capabilities the state may offer to another state. So this is a way to really build a a set of informal agreements uh, from a National Guard perspective that can be executed on, upon by the states. You know, once uh, once uh, they leave that conference and go back to the state, then working back with their own emergency management functions and the governor's office, you know, being able to then uh, tie that bow together uh, to say, hey, we've got uh, X capability that, that uh, we can offer up or we have uh, Y capability that we may need. So, so the way it works is, uh, you know, we look at, we look at what's the worst day in, you know, and I'm, I'm speaking Kansas here as an example. What's the worst day in Kansas look like uh, for us who use a, you know, maybe a multi-hazard event or, a, a, for instance, a multiple tornadoes that cut a pretty wide swath across some, maybe some metropolitan areas. And that's going to require a certain capability that may or may not be available in the state of Kansas, you know, from a guard perspective. Mm -hmm. So we look at that to, to understand what do we need to go ask for? In these conferences and then from that then you know we we can then uh, also you know as a is a force shaping function or force management function we can all also use that type of decision making too to understand what's the best force structure for kansas the kansas national guard to not only of course take care of our federal mission but also that state mission and be able to respond with the right force structure so maybe we don't have to necessarily always go out to another partnering state to, to go request something. An example of that a few years ago was a wildland fire uh, in 2016, I believe it was, where we had to go uh, request from another state some uh, water tender capability because we really didn't have it in the state of Kansas. And we really need to get water out west to western Kansas you know, to be able to put some of these fires out. And if you can remember back in 2016, there was a, a fairly extensive amount of wildland fires that were occur occurring in, in western Kansas, and it, it became a significant event. So we needed to, to you know, apply the concept of EMAC because we really didn't have that capability within the state, uh, but we did already have those conversations ahead of time in that conference, you know, to understand what other capabilities we can go after with neighboring states. Last point I want to make on this is that when we, when we do that negotiation and strike up those informal agreements, we look at the FEMA region states first that we're a part of, in this case, Region 7. The next thing we look at beyond that is are there any other contiguous states that are around Kansas so we can take advantage of, you know, time distance factors and being able to respond fairly quickly. Um, and then, and then finally, if we need a niche capability, we'll we'll look at you know going to other states that may have that niche capability. But but all that gets rolled up into uh, what we call the chiclet chart that uh, that lays out all the capabilities that that can be brought brought back into the EMAC process. So you know, sir, that that's interesting because the Army right now is uh, you know we're looking at force structure across and the balance across the components and so there's you know the war fighting aspects of the other part components of decisive action and what capabilities you need to be able to do that and and you know very senior people trying to sort out how you prioritize and make the right call because changing force structure is not a, a small thing in terms of cost or effort retraining and all of those kinds of things uh, so, but it really makes a lot of sense that we would have so much sustainment or transportation, uh, engineers, MPs, uh, 
chemical soldiers, uh, aviation. aviation. Everybody wants aviation, right? Um, and yet we can only afford as an army so much of it. So I just think that, that that's really fascinating. I'm not sure everybody always remembers uh, that there's always going to be tension between what uh, Compa One it, it thinks they're working on for O plans uh, or war plans and what states have to deal with in you know the, the most likely scenarios on a, on a recurring basis. This may be a sidebar, but sir, why don't you talk a little bit about the 10 plus one? Right, there are 10 plus one essential capabilities that uh, we look for or in, in, in all those capabilities are things like uh, aviation. Some of the things, Rich, you talked about, you know, aviation, transportation. And, and we try to marry those up with the, 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 uh, the FEMA uh, definitions of, of uh, the lifelines now, I believe it is, that, that FEMA's went to. Uh, which really, there's not a one-to-one -one relationship between the two, but it really gets back to a capabilities-based uh, 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 type of an event uh, and, and construct that you're really having conversations around capabilities and not the aegis. So I need, uh, I need five uh, of uh, aviation packages, which may be, you know, uh, five two-bird uh, packages, you know, with hoists and Bambi buckets or whatever it is, right? And then the, and then the associated personnel and all the fuel and everything to sustain them for X amount of time, which costs X amount of dollars. So all that kind of gets rolled together and boiled up together, you know, to, to build that capabilities package. And that all comes back to that essential plus one. Uh, cyber is, you know, one that uh, we, we really have uh, begun to focus on in, in, uh, in, the, in the National Guard, you know, providing cyber capability to our states, you know, for, different, for different, a lot of different reasons. So that's, that's where the plus one comes from. And then when you are now out of EMAC resources, now the governor is going to pick up the phone and call the president and ask for help. And that will trigger uh, an emergency declaration or a disaster declaration. Right? If it's something that you can see coming, like a hurricane, often you will hear them use the words emergency declaration when they're talking about the preparation. And that does certain things. It, it authorizes FEMA to begin moving resources. It authorizes, for example, limited, if they do it, uh, Title 32 money to go to the Guard to mobilize in advance, and it's not going to come out of the state's budget. It authorizes the defense coordinating element for that FEMA region to be activated to begin working with, uh, in anticipation of you know, landfall of a hurricane. Mm -hmm. uh, it, so there's a lot that goes with that, but it's not a full-blown response. It's It's... Uh, it just allows some smart pre-positioning. In a lot of disasters, the flash to bang isn't 48 to 72 hours, so uh, you, don't, you don't necessarily go through that. You go straight to a presidential disaster declaration. That turns on the money. Uh, that turns on the, the, the FEMA spigot. And uh, once the de declaration is made, FEMA is in charge. Okay? They are the coordinator at the federal level for all response and they have directive authority to every single department uh, except one DOD to tell them you will do this and the department will reply with resources in response to a request from the state. Uh, DOD gets the the right to say no and what that practically means is if, if you don't have resources because it's deployed overseas on a contingency, you can say no. But if you have it and it's not otherwise being used, 
DOD will support as well. Uh, for, a, a, as a practical matter, not necessarily a legal matter. Um, then, uh, so we get this disaster declaration from the president. FEMA is mobilizing resources. They turn on what is called a joint field office sometimes, or they run it out of their regional headquarters. They appoint somebody to be in person in charge of, of the management of that disaster called the federal coordinating officer. That person is appointed by name by the president. Okay, there's a cadre of them nationwide. Um, in fact, I looked at the report this morning. There's 45 of them, I believe, right now, and all but one are committed. There's only one that's not committed right now, and that's pretty common because there's a lot going on. Um, that person is the individual, as the representative of the president, who is committing resources, and they will work with. Uh, the governor and a state coordinating officer who is their fundamental counterpart mm -hmm. in the joint field office to uh, make decisions about commitment of resources, i.e. spending money, okay? Uh, remember, 75-25, right? 75 federal, 25 state. The state coordinating officer has the government's mandate to commit state dollars, uh, and the federal coordinating officer is committing the federal dollars and directing who shall respond from the federal government, okay? There is a third entity you heard me briefly mention before. It's a defense coordinating element. Uh, that is in our north um, structure. There's a 10 of them embedded in the FEMA regions nationwide. They're headed up by, by a colonel, post-brigade command colonel. They have a small staff and a reserve cadre that mobilizes as needed so they can go up to 34. Typically, there's about 8 to 10 of them actively engaged that reside in the FEMA headquarters for each region, mm -hmm. okay? They are the ones who are going to vet requests for DOD Title X federal support, okay? Not the National Guard support, because that's being handled by, by General Rieger and, and his staff, okay? Now, there's a lot of coordination that comes with, with Guard and Title X coming, but Right now I'm talking about the Title X people arriving and then employing them is a separate conversation. So there's going to be a request to FEMA for capability and at the Joint Field Office they're going to say we don't have any non-DOD resources we can apply to this so let's ask DOD. The DCE, that's coordinating element, they're going to staff and vet uh, that request, and they have a process for doing that, and there's a, actually statute, which Mr. Gonzalez may talk about later, that you have to follow to, to make sure that it's something that DOD can and should do. And then uh, DCO will, will send a recommendation on that request to NORTHCOM and then into JDOMS, and JDOMS will task one of the components, FORCECOM, the Air Force, the Navy, whatever, to go provide a unit to go do something. Okay, and then they get employed uh, uh, in the state, uh, and the customary, in the normal and customary method of doing that anymore post Hurricane Sandy is going to be under the command and control of a dual status commander, who is typically a National Guard colonel or general officer, depending on the scope and scale, that has been trained to do it, and who uh, will employ both Title 32 and Title 10 forces 
at the direction of the governor to meet requirements. Now, I think now that we've gotten to this point, I think it's important that we bring in our, our uh, staff judge advocate to, to talk through some of this. So, Mr. Gonzalez, now that we've got both federal and, and National Guard forces uh, working together, could you talk us through the various statutes and titles uh, for soldiers conducting DISCA and how these differ between active duty or federal troops and National Guard? Uh, yes, um, the uh, federal troops we often refer to as a Title X, and the National Guard we often refer to as Title 32. And um, those two abbreviated terms, Title 10 and Title 32, come from the United States Code, so that all the laws pertaining to the active duty force can be found in Title 10 of the United States Code. And all the laws, federal laws pertaining to the National Guard can be found in Title 32 of the United States Code. And then there's this additional National Guard status called state active duty, and the laws pertaining to National Guard in that status uh, are in state laws. Now, when it comes to uh, when it comes to DISCA, and you have both Title 10 forces and National Guard forces uh, in the uh, disaster relief effort, the uh, active duty force, the Title 10 forces, are going to be performing what I call just federal missions uh, approved by the SECDEF or, in some cases, the NORTHCOM commander. And uh, most of these uh, are going to be, as has been described already, uh, mission assignments that uh, FEMA has generated and uh, that appropriate ones have been uh, given to the Department of Defense through the uh, Defense Coordinating Officer and Element and, and these requests for assistance, these mission assignments, as they are called, have been vetted at the DCO-DCE level. Um, there are several prescripted mission assignments, well, there are 28 prescripted mission assignments that uh, FEMA and the Department of Defense have uh, agreed uh, to use. And these are basically templates where uh, the capability that FEMA is looking for resides in the Department of Defense. And so uh, instead of FEMA trying to figure out, well, who, who in the federal government can provide this assistance, uh, that has already been determined. And, and altogether, there are about uh, 295 prescripted mission assignments that are each designated for a particular federal agency. And so the Department of Defense has uh, 28 of those. And... Uh, uh, a lot of them pertain to uh, aviation assets, uh, uh, transportation assets, uh, logistical assets that uh, that reside in the Department of uh, Defense. Now, I heard uh, already that you have raised the uh, the subject or the topic of the dual status commander, yes, and sir. and so the dual status commander, yes, it, you know, he has two hats. He has a federal hat, and he has a non-federal hat. He holds those two hats, one in each hand, but he can only wear one hat at a time. 
And so he can put on his federal hat, and when he has his federal hat on, he's going to be commanding uh, all the federal troops that have been opcon to him. Uh, we call that operational control, opcon to him. And they will be performing the federal missions that uh, either the SECDEF or the NORTHCOM commander um, has approved. And then he can take off that hat and he can put on his non-federal hat, and that's when he is now commanding the National Guard forces, and they will be performing missions, state missions, on behalf of the governor. Now, there's one particular law that we've got to be careful about, uh, uh, particularly with the active duty force, and that is the uh, Posse Comitatus Act. Mm -hmm. And uh, that act uh, does not permit federal forces uh, to uh, perform law enforcement functions unless there is a constitutional or an act of Congress exception. Now, that law, the Posse Comitatus Act, does not apply to the National Guard when they are in a Title 32 or state active duty status. Mm -hmm. So the National Guard uh, is thus uh, at uh, liberty to perform law enforcement functions according to their uh, state law. Okay, so that would be the, the primary difference, we could say, between the Title 10 and the Title 32? That is, uh, yes, that, that would be a, a primary one, and that is why you, you will rarely see uh, National Guard forces uh, federalized and put in a Title X status for a DISCA event uh, because we, uh, the federal side, we want those National Guard assets to be available to the governor to use to perform state missions and also to perform law enforcement missions if necessary, uh, because that's something that generally, now, generally, that the uh, active duty force cannot uh, perform. Okay. Well, and I think that that was good that you, you mentioned the, the dual status, and I want to go back to that real quick, because it is, I think command and control is is tricky in these instances. Not only are you dealing with a disaster unfolding, but you're also dealing with, you know, coordination between local, state, federal agencies, uh, National Guard soldiers, possibly federal soldiers. So could you, Mr. Tennant, maybe talk us through the difference between a dual status and a parallel command and what are the options for commanding and controlling these forces? Right. So the parallel command is simply the idea that there's going to be one chain of command, one command structure directing the actions of the federal forces, the Title X. And the state will have its own chain of command, and the two are not integrated with each other. They're just carrying out their mis the missions that they're assigned uh, side by side, okay? And frankly, that kind of was the way it was before Sandy. And then after Sandy, some legislate the, we, the, we did have this idea of a dual-status command, but it was rarely used. Mm -hmm. After Sandy, the legislation was changed to say that it was the uh, customary in what's the right, customary and normal way that we were going to provide federal support mm -hmm. in the future. It, I think that's right. Usual and customary. Usual and customary. Usual and customary. Yes. Thank you. Post-Hurricane Sandy, the uh, uh, Congress enacted legislation which, among other things, said that the usual and customary way that 
disaster response was going to be provided using DOD resources was under dual status command. And so you will have a commander trained, as we said earlier, and designated to do it. And then uh, that person will have staffs provided, a Title 32 staff typically from the state, mm -hmm. and then there's also a Title 10 staff that's provided so that you, you, you don't you know, cross matter and antimatter streams. And, and it includes legal representation for each side. Right. And so where do, they, where do these two chains come together? Is this in like an, an emergency ops center or how does that, how do they achieve unity of effort? I guess? It'll be a, J, a JTF yeah. constituted for the, by the state for the dual status commander to operate. Okay. And, and you could have a federal structure backing that up on a very large scale disaster, which includes federal joint task forces uh, and subsidiary uh, forces being opcon to um to the dual status commanders in the state under those joint task forces, it starts getting pretty complicated, yeah. uh, depending on the scope and scale of it. Uh, so a, a small scale thing, if we were gonna provide federal forces to help in Sharon Springs, uh, we'd probably just opcon them straight to the, the state's dual status commander, mm -hmm. right? Who would give them their Title X mission requirements give the guard its title 32 mission requirements but they would be coming from the same person yeah well now another issue with regards to command and control and i want to turn this over to uh general rieger is interoperability and I, i'm curious how does the national guard go about ensuring uh, its forces can operate alongside um, the civilian and the the federal agencies that are not military meaning for example simple things like being able to talk on the same radios between police and, uh, and National Guard soldiers, or a medevac pilot being able to talk to firefighters on the ground. Can you talk us through how you guys sort out interoperability, sir? Absolutely, Chris, yeah, and, that, and that's a good example. I mean, we, we all have different systems that don't talk to each other. So, you know, it goes back to that common framework that's provided that everyone aligns to, you know, from a, from a uh, common framework, I'm talking about National Response Framework, NIMS, ICS, you know, utilizing that common framework and common terminology that enables all response forces to be able to understand each other's lexicon. Uh, also, you know, be able to be on the same radio system. So what we've done, for example, for the, the radio issue, the, the communication issue, at least from a, from a media means, is to be able to uh, acquire 800 megahertz radios, which allows us to talk to our first responders and others that, that utilize that. So that's a way to achieve that common interoperability and allow us to communicate. We also put liaisons out there, you know, either get a liaison maybe from a different uh, first responder agency back into um, the, the National Guard framework, or we may send a liaison to um, the incident command post, which is really where all the you know, at the local level, that's where all of the activity really is generated from with the incident commander and, and being able to provide that liaison and, and communication back into uh, what the National Guard response needs to look like. So, you know, common framework, common processes, integrated systems. We have, uh, you know, our civil support teams that every state has uh, out there um, uh, that 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 uh, provides a lot of that communication capability too we can leverage to allow us to to talk to the different networks um, another thing i wanted to bring up is training 
uh, either at the local, state, or national level. You know, we we want to exercise these things ahead of time before there's an event. That's what that's what will prove out whether we have an interoperability problem or not. You know, do we are we able to communicate with? Uh, you know, if we have a local uh, if we have a local guard organization that is in uh, a particular county uh, county seat, uh, building that relationship. Uh, doing some of that local training. Uh, we spend a lot of time doing our federal mission training, but we also have to realize that we also have that state mission that we have to train for, and that comes back to building those relationships with those county emergency managers and, and being able to exercise how this all works so that when we need to be called upon, you know, we don't have issues with the communication, we don't have issues with uh, knowing, who the, knowing who the players are, and being able to facilitate and make things work very smoothly. So interoperability is, is key to, to allowing us to be able to respond effectively as an organization. And I'm sure uh, you've been put to the test this, this past year uh, because it seems as though uh, DISC has taken center stage, as we mentioned earlier. And so I'm curious, sir, if you could uh, maybe talk about some of the, the big rocks that, that the Kansas National Guard has been doing this year. Sure. Um, we have uh, the, the Kansas Guard uh, has been busy, like everyone has been busy, right? I mean, it's been an unprecedented year. Um, there's a lot of things that, that are going on. Obviously, COVID is is on everyone's mind and still is is uh, a, a big concern for everyone. For the for the Kansas National Guard, we know we have a large amount of skill sets we can call upon in natural disasters. We've got approximately 7,000 personnel. Uh, that we can call upon when we, we need to respond to a disaster. But 2020 has been different. Uh, traditionally, we, we respond to events that are very episodic in nature. Things like uh, a tornado will come in you know, and, and hit a particular community and we need to go provide some support for a period of time and then we're out of there, right? Very, very short duration events. Floods sometimes are a little bit longer but maybe not necessarily requiring a lot of personnel to support those events. Uh, we have had, you know, multiple uh, events occur at once where we have multi-hazards that, that do occur that, that we need to, to, to bring, you know, different resources to bear to, to attack these, uh, these uh, disasters a little bit differently using different capabilities and assets that we have that we're called upon to leverage. So, so that's, that's certainly, uh, you know, kind of what we normally deal with, but this year, um, we, we've obviously had uh, a tremendous uh, change in how we operate. COVID has caused us to respond at a scale that we've never responded before. I would say probably, you know, 15% of our force at any one point in time has been actively working COVID over several months. So it's not only a, a uh, high demand uh, event, but also long duration, which puts a strain on the force. Mm -hmm. We've, we've, at one point in time, we had probably 25 active mission assignments from our Diver Division of Emergency Management that we were tasked with. Things like all the way from uh, providing uh, uh, support uh, at the Lansing Correctional Facility uh, to, to uh, do mobile testing teams or static testing teams out in some communities that uh, just don't have the means to be able to support that type of a thing. Uh, to providing delivery of PPE out to the different counties, protective equipment out to the counties mm -hmm. for either hospitals, dental offices, or whatever needs to require it. So just a smorgasbord of, of things that we've had to, to do. And this isn't just a Kansas, you know, Kansas is, is one slice of what 
Guard Nation has had to, to do, and of course on the federal side too, we all know the, the response and the, and the magnitude of the response that we had to do. So, so obviously COVID has been a big thing for us, you know, and obviously the other thing that, that came into play was just being able to prepare for potential civil unrest, you know, earlier this year too. So we trained up uh, several of our, our team to, uh, just to, with the refresher training on that. Luckily we didn't have to employ anyone, but that, that, you know, those two things together really did pull a lot of demand on the organization. Um, and, then, and then we're actively then uh, sending uh, soldiers to the southwest border to, to uh, support the, the southwest border mission with Custom and Border Patrol as well. So if you take a look at all that together, you know, there's a lot of things going on. And, uh, and then, of course, being able to also respond. You don't, you don't want to focus on the big things and forget about the normal things that are happening. So when the, there's a flare-up on a fire, a wildland fire in western Kansas, which there was this year, um, in the same area, interestingly enough, back to the 2016 area, you know, we, we, we pushed out our uh, aircraft with Bambi buckets and, and uh, responded, you know, in, in, in good fashion for that too and really of, you know, lessons learned from 2016, I think, and, and I think the local uh, EMs really kind of understood what capability that provides, so there's probably a propensity to probably go there quickly to not have a repeat of what happened before, but, you know, we, we, we can't forget those kind of things either, so we, we, we've got a lot of things to balance. Again, that's, that's Kansas' view. I know that every state, you know, has similar things going on or even, even more things going on. So it's been a very active year for us. Yeah. Well, thank you, sir. The, I'm curious, though, because you, you do mention these enduring challenges like COVID. Is, I guess, are you planning or are there plans in the works for you, for the Kansas National Guard, to continue to support future COVID efforts as far as vaccine distribution or, or whatnot? Yeah, you know, the first thing we do when we – we get these mission assignments is we look for an exit strategy <laughs> and and which is important right because the, the things we talked about before we were we don't want to be doing this for a long period of time because there's other there's other entities that can pick this up at some point in time and we want to we want to be able to shift our resources elsewhere and 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 do something different but we're always there to be counted on and 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 that's what we do so when it comes to um, the the vaccination, you know, we we like I said before, we've we've pushed out uh, and supported a considerable amount of, uh, of mobile testing and static testing teams just to be able to test uh, in some of the the areas in, across the state of Kansas that that uh, where there may be some high density of uh, of cases popping up, and we need to have a, a high throughput. You know, so those counties didn't have the means to do that. So we built this concept working with our division of emergency management to to uh, put these teams out there to allow the allow the drive-through testing to occur or you know different ways to 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 rapidly push you know have a very good large throughput of uh, of uh, people through the, the process so likewise i could see that from a vaccination perspective when a vaccination occurs you know we could be called upon to implement a similar construct or, or something, you know, that, that uh, will allow us to, to help with uh, vaccination efforts for areas that may not be able to, you know, have the resources to do it on their own. We haven't uh, been approached yet on, on that and, and we'll just have to see, but, you know, we're certainly ready and, and willing to jump in there if that's the case. And, you know, this brings up a, an interesting, to me, a very interesting issue with regards to readiness. You know, the, the National Guard is, is putting out fires at home and being called on quite frequently, but then you're also deploying uh, soldiers and airmen overseas. 
How do you balance that readiness, those requirements, sir? Yeah, that's a that's always a tough one. Uh, it kind of goes back to just to kind of frame up again. We have the dual mission, just to remind everyone. You know, we have a federal mission, we have that state mission. We do a lot. We do most of our training uh, against the federal mission, uh, and and really and really why that is is that if we can train our core competencies and do the tasks, the metal tasks that we do for our federal mission then it's relatively straightforward to transcend or, or, or to, to really shift those those type of tasks over to a domestic support operation for our for our civilian counterparts. Mm-hmm. So there is a little bit of a, a nuance to that though. There is some specific, specific training that we do take just so there's key personnel that understand the instant command system, they understand NIMS, they understand the national response framework they understand how to. They understand how to how to how to work with our agency partners, you know. So that's a little bit different uh, construct than maybe that, that everyone's used to. So we, we need to have that type of training. But a large part of our federal mission training allows us to get after the things that we do to respond within the state. Because driving a truck, uh, uh, you know, being a being a transportation unit, you know, whether it's overseas or domestically here, it's a lot of the same task, right? So, so you have that aspect of it. Um, the equipment, you know, we can use the same equipment and it's dual purpose. We can use for, for both mich- missions. But we, we, we've done some things differently this year that we haven't done before that probably have allowed us to, to build readiness uh, just with the COVID response. We stood up a JTF for the first time. We had a dual status commander that was approved to be implemented. It was never called upon. Most states... Uh, uh, by the way, you know, had had dual status commanders that were approved, but uh, only a few that were actually implemented in, in the construct. But we had, but by doing that, we really allowed us to build readiness and do things that we normally hadn't done on from a domestic support operation perspective. Uh, but but back to the back to the federal mission, all the things that we've done with COVID and 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 the other domestic operations we've had to do have pulled away from our federal mission training. So we've had to look at ways to continue to maintain readiness. Mm-hmm. So what do we do? Well, what we can do is we can we can uh, we can look at uh, other opportunities to train. We've had to shift some training to the right because of COVID, mm-hmm. but that but we found innovative ways to still get after it. We had an organ. We had a, one of our battalions that uh, was getting ready for NTC in 2021. They need to go through a XCTC validation process this year. Um, we had to scale that back, uh, not because we didn't have the personnel that were that were being used for from a COVID perspective, but we had, but because of the COVID situation, we had to maybe not have as many forces together at one point in time. So we came up with an innovative way that that allowed us to train some of the some of the tasks at home station, and then and then work with part, Fort Riley, who's been a great partner, you know, in all this too, and, and, and a long enduring partner of ours uh, with First ID to be able to to send our our teams there, do their do their lanes, mm-hmm. their gun uh, their lanes and maneuver lanes, and then and then be able to you know get to a point where the evaluators felt comfortable that we had. Uh, check the block and and uh, actually 
we're able to uh, be able to conduct operations and prepare for NTC next year. So that, that's one example, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been tough. It's been a strain on the force, but uh, you know, that's when we, we need to go back to the, the EMACs again, you know, to kind of circle back to that. If we have a high op tempo deployment year and we know that we're gonna have a lot of forces out of Kansas because of deployments, we may wanna go back in that conference again and strike up an agreement to say, hey, you know, if something bad happens in Kansas, during, uh, during, the, during this period of time, we may need excess cap capability mm -hmm. from you know, one or two or three states or whatever it is to be able to fill that niche uh, capability that, that we're leaving behind. Yes, so, so it really goes back to you know, just understanding what the op tempo looks like, save enough excess capacity for unforeseen issues and then have those agreements in place so that you can, you can uh, execute on those agreements if you need to. So you know, a couple of things General Rieger said really resonated in terms of the importance of DISCA to the, the total Army. Um, and I kind of relate it back to what the Army Chief of Staff said. You know, he says people are first priority, and it's the people aspect of what you described, sir, that uh, really make a difference. You know, so what, are, what, what is the armed forces, regardless of which component, what do they bring to this? Well, you're bringing... Uh, cohesive discipline formations that can execute tasks and that are flexible enough because of the training they have and maybe in their core federal medal but, or, or the things that their core state tasks might be uh, they, they translate both ways and then the other takeaway I, I got from that is many of the things we ask uh, say National Guard units to do we mobilize them and they go and they deploy forward uh, to conduct operations or activities or exercises as part of competition with our peer adversaries. Um, but when you have to make value judgments about what, you know, what our priorities are, you know, defending uh, the United States of America is part of what DISCA is. I mean, it's a protection function. It's a, it's a defense function. And so if you were going to go, and this is just my personal opinion, and, and, and rack and stack you know, what are the most important things that we do? Um, yeah, defending the nation in conflict is always going to be number one. Um, defending the nation in competition uh, is, is at least a tie with protecting our own people here, right? That's what the American people expect. So I just think it's kind of neat how, uh, to, to use a 1950s word, to, uh, to kind of see how, yeah, there's a tension there, but the, there's benefits from the experience of doing the one that translate and, and to doing the other better, and it works both ways. That's my observation. Yeah, you're right. There, and there is a tension there, but that's where we have to be smart about it, and let's leverage what we're doing already you know, to, to build capability and readiness in both mission sets at the same time and not, and not, and not try to, to do both you know, discreetly. Because it just doesn't make sense to do that. Because they they do they do dovetail into each other. At this point, I just want to point out that, and we often lose sight of this for whatever reason, that there are four parts to decisive action: right. offense, defense, stability, and mm -hmm. defense support civil authorities. And that sometimes that that last one sometimes doesn't get our full attention until something happens, and then we need to shift to it. Well, I will tell you uh, uh, from firsthand experience early on in COVID, we did a deep dive on 
all disco-related doctrine. In fact, Chris helped do that. Um, Captain Harper helped do that. Ted helped do that. Um, just to inform the senior leaders. Um, and it wasn't, we weren't informing the senior leaders who were actually doing it at Northcom and U.S. Army North. They already knew all that stuff. It was informing the leaders in the rest of the Army who were providing forces, in this case, active duty forces, from within Training and Doctrine Command and, and Forces Command uh, to go support the Armed North mission because most of us just don't spend any time thinking about that unless you're in a job where it's important to do it. Uh, and so that was very educational for us in, in the doctrine world. Uh, first it was, we shouldn't have been surprised that people were gonna be interested in it, uh, but the appetite for that was huge. Um, and my guess is there was a lot of peer mentoring going on uh, between the National Guard leadership and, and the active duty folks who showed up on the ground yeah. to help. And, and, and also, just to, just to follow on to that too, Rich, you know, I think we, we likewise looked at internally on this response really has caused us to rethink on how we do response within Kansas. You know, we had a lot of plans on the shelf. We had a pandemic plan, and certainly we used a lot of the pandemic plan, but there's things that happened in COVID that were unprecedented, you know, and so this has been a forcing function for us to go back and relook at these plans again. Um, you know, foreign animal disease plan, you know, what, you know, uh, you know, all, all those plans that we've got out there and, and uh, how do we, um, you know, make it better and learn from this, you know, so I think it, we, we've taken away a lot of, of lessons learned uh, out of, from COVID and, and made things better. And, and I think overall the force is going to be better for it. And so on the, on the subject of these, these current events, as DISC has taken, you know, is front and center right now, I want to bring Mr. Gonzalez back in um, because I'd like to talk about briefly about the border support mission that both federal and National Guard troops have been supporting for quite some time. And Mr. Gonzalez, I'm hoping that you can explain uh, both under what title and authority these soldiers are generally working, and then what kind of support they're providing down there? I'll be glad to uh, do that. Um, we have been, uh, federal forces have been uh, on the border since late October of uh, 2018. And approval, SECDEF approval, has been obtained to uh, continue this support until the end of this fiscal year, which will be September 30th of next year. Now, on on its face, when you when you look at what's going on on the border, I I know just from personal experience, individuals have approached me, and have expressed the thought that uh, federal troops are doing law enforcement type of activity uh, that's prohibited by the uh, Posse Comitatus Act. Mm -hmm. And while that may be the optics, uh, uh, here is what is uh, going on. Um, there is a, a statute, it's called the uh, Military Support to Civilian Law Enforcement Agencies Act of 1981, and it's found in Title 10, United States Code, Section 271 and 274, and recall that I said earlier all the federal laws pertaining to the active duty force are in Title 10 of the United States Code. And, and these particular sections, sections 271 to 274, uh, are a uh, act of Congress exception to the Posse Comitatus Act. 
uh, and it allows the Secretary of Defense to approve uh, what is called indirect passive support to civil law enforcement agencies. And so, of course, uh, the Customs and Border Protection is a federal law enforcement agency, mm-hmm. and so they are the direct recipient of the support that DOD is providing. So uh, um, none of of our federal soldiers are performing what is called active direct law enforcement, such as uh, an arrest, uh, apprehension, a search, a seizure, uh, interrogation. Uh, We are not doing that type of activity at all. Mm -hmm. Instead, we are doing uh, indirect passive support, and specifically, uh, we are providing engineers uh, to uh, repair barriers or install new barriers or fencing. Uh, We are providing medical personnel to screen migrants Mm -hmm. uh, to see if they have any disease or any injuries. And so uh, uh, these are the main functions uh, that we are have been providing and that uh, we are providing. Uh, and as I said, we will continue to, to provide until September of next year. And, and so all of that uh, comes under Section 271-274 of uh, Title 10 of uh, the United States Code. Now, sir, you, you mentioned uh, exceptions to posse comitatus, and I, I kind of want to talk about the, I guess, the most well-known exception to Posse Comitatus Act, and that's the Insurrection Act. Can you talk us through the Insurrection Act and what it, uh, I guess, enables and both constrains? The Insurrection Act is, uh, you know, there is a provision in the Constitution that, uh, that uh, I think it's Article uh, 4 of the Constitution, uh, Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution that provides for uh, federal uh, response to uh, to any uh, domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And pursuant to that uh, Section 4 of uh, Article 4, uh, Congress uh, passed the Insurrection Act. And it gives the president, and only the president, the authority to use uh, federal forces to uh, assist the state in restoring and maintaining law uh, uh, law and order. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are three circumstances where this support uh, can be uh, provided. Uh, and very simply, uh, uh, and I failed to mention, uh, again, this is also, because this is an act that pertains to the federal force, it's found in Title 10 of the United States Code, specifically Sections 251 uh, to 254. And so the three circumstances where the president can provide federal forces to restore law and order is very simply when there is an insurrection against state authority, uh, when there is a number two, when there is an insurrection against U.S. authority, or number three, when the insurrection is depriving a class of citizens of their constitutional rights 
and the state is either unable or unwilling to protect those rights. So that would be like President Eisenhower's use of uh, federal troops to desegregate the Little Rock schools, for example, that last incident? Exactly. Exactly. And I know that probably uh, maybe I'm the only one who was alive back in 1956 uh, in this group who uh, was able to witness uh, what was going on in Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, in the uh, federal court order to integrate uh, the public high school. And and so in that case, uh, we could go either with uh, the second basis or the third basis for uh, uh, invoking the Insurrection Act. And, and as you may recall, I said the second basis was there was an insurrection against U.S. authority. And in that case, the U.S. authority was a federal district court order. Mm-hmm. And so there were individuals in the streets in, in, in Little Rock who were uh, opposing that order and not allowing that order to be implemented. So uh, the president could have used the, the uh, second basis, or he could have used the third basis, which is there, there was a class of citizens, uh, these uh, high school students who were being uh, deprived of their constitutional rights, uh, in this case, a uh, uh, public education, and uh, the state of Arkansas was unwilling to protect those rights. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the president uh, uh, invoked the Insurrection Act, President Eisenhower. Now, in either one of those three cases, there is a predicate here that the president has to satisfy, and that is he has to issue a proclamation uh, to all those who are disrupting the normal course of business and, and, and basically order them to assist and desist and to return to their homes peacefully. And uh, and if they don't uh, do that within uh, a specified period of time, then that's when the president can invoke uh, the Insurrection Act. Now, that provision about the proclamation does not specify how much time the president has to give. Uh, that is totally within his discretion. And so uh, he may give uh, a matter of days if he if he chooses, or it could be as little as a matter of hours, uh, depending on the uh, depending on the circumstances. Now there have been uh, you know you mentioned the, the the Little Rock, Arkansas situation, but there have been two more recent. Uh, yeah, could you tell us about those? Uh, yes, when the Insurrection Act's been invoked both times by the first President Bush. And uh, I'm going to guess that uh, most individuals may remember the Los Angeles riots mm-hmm. in the aftermath of uh, the virtual acquittal of all charges against the, uh, the uh, several uh, police officers who beat up uh, Rodney King. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a massive, a massive reaction in the city towards that acquittal mm-hmm. that encompassed square miles of, of property within Los Angeles. And uh, the governor uh, 
of California uh, requested federal assistance under the first under the first basis. You know, the uh, this was an insurrection against state authority, and it was uh, state actors who were requiring uh, uh, individuals to 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 stop their uh, their rioting or what what have you, and and they were just simply refusing. So when there is uh, this situation involving state authority, the state legislature has to do the requesting uh, for assistance Mm -hmm. unless they're not in session. And then if they're not in session, then it would be the governor. So at the time of the L.A. riots, the uh, California legislature was not in session, and so Mm -hmm. Governor Wilson uh, asked for uh, assistance. I got you. Thank you for that, sir. Now, Mr. Tennant, when we were talking about the, uh, the border mission, did you have some something to add to that? Well, I, I will say that uh, I think we, we, we were discussing just the current actions that are ongoing under the, uh, the uh, presidential emergency declaration, mm-hmm. which then sent active DOD forces to support CBP. Uh, but there's a second piece to this. And there is a, a standing joint task force, which has been in operation since 1989, providing support in a counter-drug authority, uh, using the same um, statutory authorities that Mr. Gonzalez discussed, 271 through 284. There's, it's extended a little bit beyond what he was discussing for them. And this is JTF North, formerly known as JTF-6. Mm-hmm. And, and since... Uh, it, they're still active and they're still uh, providing support in the in the counter drug effort and their mandate has actually been increased following 9/11 to include transnational threats and operations against transnational organized crime mm-hmm. uh, and so that even absent the current emergency declaration which took federal forces down to the border federal forces often go to the border to do JTF North missions as well. And, and so the same kind of constraints apply. They, they have to be very concerned with uh, intelligence oversight regulation, with the restrictions against the direct participation in any law enforcement activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the categories of missions that he discussed are, 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 are appropriate. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, I was the, uh, the JTF engineer down there. And we did a lot of road construction, fence construction, and lights construction for the U.S. Border Patrol between the ports of entry. Uh, and that goes on to this day. Um, and, and, um, and actually, they employ all three components at various times doing uh, various missions along the southwest border of the United States to include detection and monitoring, to include aerial reconnaissance, uh, and, and I, so we don't need to forget that it's not just this current emergency declaration, which it's involves nothing is, yeah. federal. I mean, we've been doing it for a very long time, and, and it is not, in fact, as was pointed out, a posse comitatus violation. It's just governed under the statute uh, that is an exception and it's very specifically laid out in those, um, actually both in those uh, parts of uh, Chapter 15 of Title 10, but also it's typically uh, in the NDAA every year as well. 
Well, I'm just amazed by the the diversity of the disc emission. To be honest, when we when we everything we've talked about today, it's uh it's astounding in in how much uh, our soldiers do, our soldiers and airmen uh, do to do this these this mission set. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of the the conversations we have in the doctrine world all the time is people act like something's new mm-hmm. when really it's new to them and or, or new to us you know because we just haven't been exposed to it well gentlemen on that note did uh did we miss anything did we leave anything out i think we covered quite a few bases today you know i i guess since this is a doctrine podcast the one thing that i kind of came back to is what makes disco doctrine unique is that one it's very prescriptive mm-hmm. uh, most doctrine is not most parts elements of doctrine are not prescriptive but it is because of its linkage to the policy and how the army supports uh, civilian authorities that's one um, and, and two um, that maybe all of us should spend a little bit more time paying attention to it mm-hmm. uh, given the contemporary operating em- environment that we're in um, because if we haven't dabbled in DISCA in our careers up to this point, the chances of it are probably pretty high sometime in the future, particularly for the younger members uh, of the force. And I, and, I, and I will tell you that from my perspective, legal implications have to be known. There's the, You definitely need to understand the legal implications mm-hmm. as well as authorities and status of what status you're in, what authorities you're under. So there is definitely, uh, you know, that aspect of it that uh, that leadership and those that are in, in, the, in the trenches doing this need to understand what their left and right limits are because it is very prescriptive. Well, gentlemen, on that note, I think we'll wrap things up. Uh, thank you for joining me today. I'd also like to thank our listeners and note that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army the United States Army Training and Doctrine Command, Army North, the Kansas National Guard, or the Combined Arms Center. I'm Major Chris Parker, and this is Breaking Doctrine.